Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The final day of the Connecticut legislative session is June 9th. This year, legislators tackled a number of bills related to criminal justice reform and equity. Things like the Clean Slate Bill, ending solitary confinement, prison-based gerrymandering, legalizing cannabis, and the Crown Act. The hearing for that legislation made its way to HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. The consequences of hair-based discrimination are very real. Just listen to Connecticut State Senator Gary Winfield make the case for his state's Crown Act in the run-up to it passing into law by talking about his three-year-old daughter. Right now, she runs through life with all of the energy that she has, with all of the beauty that she has, with her hair natural. That's who she is. It's not just what sits on top of her head, it is who she is. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll talk to a social psychologist and consultant about the movement for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, one year after the murder of George Floyd. But now, Democratic Connecticut State Senator Gary Winfield joins us to talk through the status of some of the legislation that he's been working on. Senator Winfield, welcome back to Disrupted. Thank you for having me back. When we spoke back in January, talking about this legislative session and and things that you hoped to address and accomplish, criminal justice really seemed to dominate that agenda. And I know that because you're co-chair of the Judiciary Committee, you've been at the forefront of a lot of those efforts. Talk to us first about the Clean Slate Bill, both in terms of what that bill intends to do, but also the broader picture of the barriers that the formerly incarcerated face here in Connecticut. So in terms of concept, Clean Slate is pretty simple. Um, It is if you have been in prison uh, and you've been out for a certain period of time, and it depends on the offense what that period of time is, but if you've been out for a certain period of time, that no further interactions with uh, law enforcement and been arrested, uh, that you should not have a record held over your head uh, for the uh, duration of your lifetime. And so um, this session, we started out with a bill that looked to erase uh, your record if you had a C felony after a period of 12 years, or 15 years rather, uh, and a D felony after a period of uh, 10 years, and then a uh, misdemeanor after a period of seven years. Um, so that one would have to have served their time, come out, existed inside of society like the rest of us and been able to function. Uh, and then at a certain point, uh, you know, it's like your mother says when you're a kid, you do the crime, you do the time, but the time doesn't last your, your entire life. The purpose of that is uh, if you have a record, we know that things are, are more difficult for you in terms of uh, being able to access housing, uh, access employment and all of the things that any of us would need in order to function fully in our society. Uh, And when you really think about what that means, not just for the individual, but for the society, it means that that individual is much more likely uh, to commit a crime again if we uh, bar them from participating. So while many people think that the, the scheme that we currently have is public safety, I actually suggest that doing clean slate increases public safety. You have 
been very vocal about questioning and challenging people who think that they have all the right answers to actually address the nuance. And not just in Clean Slate, which focuses on what happens to people after their release, but also the conditions while they are incarcerated. And two key pieces that you've been addressing, one is the movement to end solitary confinement, but also the movement to make phone calls free. And you've talked about the piles of mail that you receive from people who are incarcerated in Connecticut. What have you learned from that correspondence and why is this issue so important? I've never spent time in prison except to go visit, right? Uh, and and I don't know what that experience is. What those letters, and there, there's a deluge of those, at least for me. What those letters do is give me a little sense of what it is to have that experience. And I guess maybe I come at this whole set of issues a little differently. I come at this whole set of issues trying to think about how people who I don't necessarily connect to naturally, uh, who might be an other. Uh, I, I guess I look at it and I, maybe we should keep religion and politics separately, but I do look at it through a framework that has been built into me from childhood uh, to try to imagine people who I don't see as uh, neighbor or, 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 or like me as similar. Um, and when I do that and I hear those experiences, I say, this is not what I would want um, for anyone because I'm, I'm looking at them as human beings. Uh, do we wanna torture people? I don't think anybody wants to torture people. But when you look at what solitary confinement is and how it actually works, that's exactly what it is. And we, uh, you may know that we had a solitary confinement mock chamber that we brought to the Capitol. Legislators didn't wanna get in this thing uh, because even though they could open the door, the experience itself was not an experience any of us wanted. And yet somehow in policy, we leave that experience to be the, the way that people are handled. That's just, that just doesn't make sense to me. I just wanna say one more thing about um, the way that these conversations kind of take place because in all of these conversations, people say, uh, well, what about the victims? Uh, as if you, because you are understanding that we are still human and there are things we should do, you're forgetting about the victims. But I wanna say that we've been having a conversation in society about um, the white lens, the white gaze, white supremacy, all of those things. And even in the conversation about victimhood, it's present. Uh, because as I said on the floor of the Senate and the Judiciary Committee, I've been a victim of crime many, many times in my life. Uh, most of the people I know have been victims of crime because of the circumstances we live in. We live in certain communities, we're black. Uh, and that doesn't mean every black person experiences it, but we tend to have more experiences with crime. I slept with a knife under my bed when I was a kid because of the crime I experienced. So this is not about, uh, you, you've forgotten about the victims. And it tends to be that the victims that are talked about are people who've experienced a crime, uh, but don't experience crime the way the people that I know experience crime. And we seem to be valuing one set of victims' perspective over others because the people I know still, despite what has happened to them, don't wanna treat these people as if they're animals. So let's talk a little bit about the money, because it does shape the conversation, but it also shapes sometimes what people are willing to do to get to those ends. There are millions of dollars that will flow into the state as a part of the American Rescue Plan. And at the same time, we are seeing allocations around the census and how that census data shapes not just what we view as priorities, but the kind of action that we take. And in Connecticut, which sometimes surprises people because I think 
people assume that New England and Connecticut are somehow immune to these conversations, prison-based gerrymandering plays a key role in the allocation of resources, whether that is political power and, and legislative seats or actual dollars to address the challenges that lead to the trauma. Talk to our listeners about why prison-based gerrymandering is such an issue in Connecticut when it comes to representation. Uh, these individuals deserve representation like anyone else. Uh, and the system we currently have says that ostensibly you have representation, but you do not. Um, the people who represent these individuals certainly aren't getting the deluge of mail that I'm getting and certainly aren't responding. I am doing work for people who, yes, I know live in New Haven, right? Or Hartford or Bridgeport or one of the places that we tend to talk about, but who I'm not supposed to be representing given the way that the census allocates those people. Uh, and the people who are supposed to be representing them have that many less people that they have to actually work on. So my people in my district, as it's constructed, get less representation because I have to deal with all of those people. And people in other districts, that, by extension, get more representation because their representative has to deal with less people. That doesn't sound to me to be fair. It doesn't sound to me to be something that makes sense. It is something we should uh, not stand for. So when I entered the General Assembly, uh, one of the first pieces of legislation I picked up was the, the abolition of uh, prison-based gerrymandering in the state. Uh, yes, representation is dealt with uh, because of the numbers. Uh, monies are dealt with because of the numbers. All of this stuff, but at its core, this is those people who will never go and live in Enfield or Summers or one of these places who are not wanted in those communities should not be given to those communities to increase their political power and to increase uh, the, the monies those communities get or any of those things. All of these issues are so complex and so layered. And when you are talking about access to power and opportunities to diminish that access, it becomes even more complicated. But Senator, sometimes there are spaces when there seems to be agreement across political parties or across layers of government about a way forward. And yet that does not always mean an easy win, however you define the win. And one of those issues is on the legalization of cannabis in Connecticut, where some people thought, look, this is a slam dunk. You have this sort of consensus to move forward. And then when we started peeling back the layers, realizing that how people define equity and what it means to means to lead with the lens of equity was not as unanimous as maybe we thought at the beginning of the session. Where do things stand today? Uh, so as we uh, stand here today, uh, we are close. Um, but I think I, I just want to say this. I think people look at this as, uh, two large sides where the governor's on one side and the representatives from the legislature um, who've been talking about equity are on the other. I think this conversation has shifted multiple times. And what we would have done two years ago, uh, even those people who are in the equity conversation largely, is completely uh, different than what we would do today. Um, and that is what makes it difficult. As other states have passed a legalization framework, uh, we have seen the failures of, of those frameworks. And that becomes more and more built into the conversation. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know that the office of the governor is um, looking at uh, this uh, in, the, in the contemporary way, at least initially, that some of the equity um, 
advocates have been looking at it. So I think they came to this largely kind of how we've been coming to this. And we're surprised at the level of pushback. Um, and I think that people should know that there's been a conversation going on from the governor's 888 bill uh, to what some people think is Robin Porter's uh, 6377 bill. And at the end of the day, uh, I think we can still make it happen. It's tight, uh, but it's going to be something wholly different than either bill. Uh, and it's going to be something that's reflective of the conversations that have been happening for the last few weeks. Uh, and we have a couple of days left, but I think we can actually make it. You've been working on these issues, as you said, for over a decade. You've had some really important wins and learned lots of lessons through that. As you look forward for the state of Connecticut, what's the issue that you hope we will address in the near future? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I don't know that there's a particular issue. I just believe that uh, people who can, who are in positions like mine, have to continue to hold up that mirror. Um, and that dictates what the issue is. Uh, for me, it's not about an issue. It's about this underlying um, understanding of who we are and, and how we've gotten here. And I think you see it play out in all issues, whether it be healthcare, uh, whether it be criminal justice, whether it be education. You, you see people who go into our schools and you know they speak their language. It, it's, it's, you can't do that. They forget that's a part of them, right? So the same thing is inside of each of these issues. And my perspective is that we need to deal with all of that. Uh, because if we don't, uh, these young people grow up recognizing that part of them is just criminal or the other or some negative thing. And that's just not true. And I get how hard it is to deal with all of that. But that's really the work that I'm doing. I mean, it's part of the reason I celebrate despite the fact that some people are not sure what it really means that we passed the SB1 that has racism as a public health crisis, because you can't say that being the case that what a lot of my colleagues will say, well, racism isn't even a thing today. It can't be a public health crisis and not a thing, right? Um, and so I guess it's a, it's a way of looking at issues more than an issue itself uh, for me. Gary Winfield represents Connecticut's 10th Senate District and is the Chief Deputy Majority Leader. Senator Winfield, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, one year after the murder of George Floyd, how are companies still embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion? This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, executives from several Connecticut companies talk about how they're making diversity a priority with their workforce. But now, Dr. Evelyn Carter is Managing Director at Paradigm. It's a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy firm that helps companies develop equitable and inclusive practices. Ask Dr. Carter to talk to us about the current state of DEI in the workplace, a year after many corporations condemned racism in public statements. I think the first answer of where we are now is that a lot of organizations are realizing that this takes a long time, right? So 
I think a lot of people realize like, yes, we need to put out statements as you were talking about last year. They said, we need to stand with our black colleagues. We need to stand with black folks. They realized then that that meant that they need to figure out what happens after you make the statement. And so what I'm finding is a lot of folks who are realizing like, wow, in order to really undo centuries of systemic oppression, it requires far more than a single statement made a year ago, but really a consistent effort over time that kind of is never done in order to right those systemic inequities. And so I think the organizations that realize that and are energized by the opportunity to really make change are the ones that have sustained the you know, things that they need to do in order to foster that more inclusive and equitable environment. The ones that are kind of like, oh, this is too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. And have backed away are the ones that are realizing uh, maybe that they're not in it for the long haul. And that could be frustrating to some people, right? You acknowledge that we didn't get here overnight, that the work of unpacking and undoing systems and structures requires this long-term sustained commitment, but also a recognition of what the work is. And one of the, the terms that we hear often in this space is anti-racism. A lot of people said, look, I read the book, now I've done the work. And your work is actually pushing back against that to say that's a step. So begin by sharing with our listeners, what exactly do we mean when we say anti-racism? And then what's the most efficient way for companies to build toward an anti-racist workspace? Yeah. So when I talk about anti-racism, I think I always remind people that in order to understand what it means to be anti-racist, you have to first understand what racism is. And racism is not just this thing that lives in the hearts and minds of bad people, right? Racism is not just about kind of like bad apple mentality, right? It's about the recognition that there are ideas, assumptions, practices, policies that lead to a system that yields privilege, and empower for some, right, typically white people and white aligned folks, and then yields discrimination and oppression for others, typically people of color. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just about the ideas and the practice and the policies we have. Racism also occurs when we don't acknowledge that racism exists, right, which is kind of weird. A lot of times people think, oh, no, if I talk about racism, then that is inherently racist. But it's actually the opposite. When you try to be colorblind, when you try to say, oh, there's no difference here, you are actually perpetuating this system that yields power and privilege for some and discrimination and oppression for others. Because when you try to act like something doesn't exist, you become unable to understand the ways in which it actually is yielding some of the things that we see in today's society. So that's what racism is. I'm just going to pause because I feel like that's usually when I'm doing workshops and stuff, it's like, oh, that's big. So that's, there's a lot there, right? Even acknowledging the existence makes people very uncomfortable. But it also often leads to the whataboutism of if we talk about racism, what about the other isms or what about the other spaces where people feel like their identity is not respected or represented in the workplace? How do you hold that intention that, yes, we need to build an anti-racist workspace and environment, but that does not mean that we can't also address the other challenges to having an inclusive environment? Yeah. So 
I think when people are talking about the kind of what about isms of racism, as you were describing, it comes from two different places. So there's one form of it, which is I am a person that has privilege, perhaps because I am white or because I am straight or cisgender or what have you. And I don't want to believe that I haven't earned the things that I've gotten. And so there's some really fascinating research by Phillips and Lowry and others who have found that when you talk to white people about privilege, what they do is start to talk about their own individual struggles more, right? So like, no, no, I don't have privilege because I grew up poor or because I did this. And what I have to remind folks in that situation is you have to remember that Privilege is not simply about the individual experiences we've had, but it's about the system that is set up such that things are easier for you, or at a minimum, they are not as hard as they are for others. So that's one form of the whataboutisms that we have to deal with. A second form of the whataboutisms that we have to deal with is when people say, there's a lot of oppression. Like, we could be talking about any number of things, right? And I actually saw this, not in the whataboutism way, but with these organizations that a year ago made those statements, you know, coming out in support of Black Lives Matter and talking about how they want to become an anti-racist organization. I had a number of organizations that I worked with who said, oh goodness, we realized that we missed the ball when it came to condemning anti-Asian violence this past spring. And what they had to realize is that this system of oppression that yields power and privilege for some and discrimination and oppression for others keeps all of us locked in this kind of jar. And it's not just about how it manifests for black folks, although it is different. It's also about how it manifests for Asian folks. It's also about how it manifests for immigrants. It's also about how it manifests for indigenous folks and on and on and on. And so what I tell people is instead of being in that jar and saying, well, why aren't you talking about black folks? Why aren't you talking about indigenous folks? To recognize that the broader system of white supremacy that we're trying to knock down requires us to all have those conversations together and say, what's really the root cause of all of this? And in many cases, the root cause is the same. There were a lot of people who looked toward companies putting out statements or blacking out their profiles on social media or putting up banners to affirm their commitment. Some people saw that as performative and said, is that really going to get us to where we need to be. But your work pushes back against that to say, how do you use that public declaration to hold these companies publicly accountable? Now that you said this is what you believe, show us that you do it. How then can employees and consumers do that work to hold accountable the organizations that have made those public statements? The best way that employees and, and consumers can hold organizations accountable is by continuing to call them out, right? I love, I mean, I was so excited as you were talking. That is exactly why I love when all of these organizations were making their statements last year, because whether it's performative or not, if you say you believe something, I am then going to hold you accountable and make sure that you are actually demonstrating in action that belief. That gives me a lot of power and a lot of opportunity to say, hey, you said you believe this. I'm not feeling the impact of that. How can I encourage you to do better? And that actually really is what anti-racism is all about, right? It's not about being perfect. It's not about fixing everything immediately, but it's about saying, I have this commitment in my heart, in my spirit, in my community that I care about, and I'm going to continue 
to work toward living that value and to making sure that it's felt by others. So if you're an employee or a consumer and you want to know what you can do, continue to ask people who are in leadership positions in your organization, how are we driving forward? If you've got a quarterly or an annual pulse survey that you do internally, ask them whether you see differences between folks from different groups. And then ask folks, what are you doing to close those gaps where they exist, right? Those are the kinds of ways in which you can continue to build in an everyday way, an inclusive and an anti-racist organization. Let's talk about some of those metrics and, and how you know that what you say you want to do or what you say you are doing is actually having the kind of effect and impact that you think. Paradigm publishes this diversity, equity, and inclusion update, and it reports that 72% of employed Americans actually want their employers to invest in an inclusive work environment. What are the metrics then that we should be using to measure equity and progress in those spaces? When I think about the metrics that are important for measuring inclusion, I go back to some of the research that we at Paradigm did with over 50 companies to kind of understand what makes a leader inclusive. And then from there, what makes an organization inclusive? And there are four different pillars that we talk about. The first is objectivity. Now, I got to be very clear. No human can be inherently objective because we're human. But objectivity is the idea that you recognize that you have biases that are going to keep you from making objective data-driven decisions. And you use strategies to make sure that you're mitigating that bias. What kind of strategies? Well, let's say, for example, you have to evaluate someone who might be ready for promotion. Instead of just kind of thinking to yourself, like, hmm, do I think they're ready? And maybe talking about it with some colleagues. What you should do if you want to be an inclusive organization is have a rubric a set of criteria that you say, this is what we're looking for. And then you should be able to provide at least one, if not two pieces of specific examples of how these folks have made sure that they have aligned with those criteria. The second pillar is fostering an environment of belonging. Belonging is the sense of being able to be your authentic self, to feel securely connected with others, to essentially know that You can be the quirky kind of person that you are, and everyone is going to welcome you with open arms, or at the very least, they're not going to ridicule you, right? And what we know is that everyone needs to feel like they belong. It's a fundamental human need. But if you're a member of a group that is underrepresented, if you're new to an environment, or if you're facing challenges, if you're recently promoted and so you're kind of stretching yourself and your level of your uh, skill at that time, or if you're underperforming, these are all opportunities for you to question your belonging. And so environments that are inclusive know this and work to say, hey, how can we make sure that we're bringing folks in, that we're sharing information for folks that are new so they know it's okay to ask questions. When you're underrepresented, that we're mitigating the experience of microaggressions. The third pillar is voice. So many of us have been in workplaces where the people who have the longest tenure or who have the highest title are the ones who get to say things in meetings. And so inclusive leaders and inclusive organizations know how to amplify everyone's voice. Make sure you're limiting interruptions, making sure when people say things, they get credit for their great ideas. And then the final pillar of inclusion is growth, really embracing a growth mindset. I remember when I was in school, when I was uh, in college, I was taking a class and uh, one of the professors said, or on the first day of class, look to your left, look to your right. 
only one of you is going to make it through the course at the end of the semester. And that kind of suggests that no matter what you do, only one in three people is going to pass this course because it's just that hard. Only certain people have it. And that's endorsing what's called a fixed mindset. The idea that talents and abilities are kind of like eye color. You either have blue eyes or you don't. But a growth mindset organization is one that says, yeah, we need some basic level of skill, but then you grow from there with hard work, with effort, when you take challenges on and when you take risks and when you struggle a little bit. We actually like that because that means that you are pushing yourself to the edge of your current ability level and you are always striving for the next best thing. And so organizations that foster objectivity by using those kind of strategies to mitigate bias, that foster an environment of belonging, amplify voice, and embrace and endorse a growth mindset in every way that they engage are the ones that are going to be more inclusive. There seems to be this disconnect of there are employees and organizations and companies who are saying, yes, we need to build toward a more inclusive environment. And even if we don't always get it right, we at least acknowledge that need and we want to do that. And at the same time, there is a growing backlash against even saying the word diversity and a backlash against that kind of training that you mentioned. And we're seeing bills in 12 states to limit or ban talking about diversity and critical race theory, even when it's often championed by people who have never actually read critical race theory or know the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and others. How do you navigate that space and that backlash as someone who is a DEI expert and is committed to helping organizations move forward? The first way that I deal with it is to remind myself and others that backlash is entirely predictable and expected. I actually wrote about this with one of my, with several of my colleagues, Dr. Tiffany Brannon, Dr. Liesl Murdoch-Carrera, and Gerald Higginbottom. And one of the things that we talked about in our article was that, listen, backlash is something that you can expect as you make progress. And there are some key reasons why, right? The first reason is that people tend to have a preference for the status quo. Change is hard. We like things, generally speaking, to stay the same. The problem is staying the same in this case means that we are going to continue to be a racist society. So we can't stay there. But if you know that people are going to be on average resistant to change and really like the status quo because it's comfortable, because it's known, then you should expect that any change is going to start to bring up some anxiety, right? So that's one source of backlash. Another source of backlash is this preference for colorblindness. This idea that many of us were taught, right? That you don't talk about race, you don't talk about difference, and that's how you get through the day. But it's actually better to not do that because if you do talk about difference, then you are racist. And so what we're also seeing is that people are being told something different. They're being told now, no, you need to acknowledge it. You need to celebrate difference. And they don't know how. So that's scary. And then the third source of backlash comes from the idea that equality has already been reached. If you look back to even 50, 60 years ago, to the Jim Crow era, have we made progress? Absolutely. But if you envision how much further we could go, there's a lot of work we could do, right? And so I think that when people look back and say, well, it's not as bad as it used to be, then that can motivate them to say, so it must be great now, right? 
But of course it's not. And so these are the sources of backlash. So then what I try to do, either when I'm working with organizations and people or when I'm coaching others, is to help them identify what's, what source of backlash is coming up here. Because once I identify the source of backlash, then we can address that, right? If your source of backlash is that change is hard and scary, well, listen, we're not changing everything overnight. We're going to work on this together, step by step. We're going to pick one or two things that we want to really focus on for this three months, six month period. If you're worried about wanting to be colorblind because that's what you've been taught, then I'm going to introduce you to the idea that embracing and celebrating difference is actually what people from marginalized groups want. And if your goal is to have an, if your intention is to foster an environment of inclusion, you wanna make sure that your impact is aligning, right? Which means that you've gotta celebrate and acknowledge difference. And if your source of backlash comes from the idea that equality has already been reached, then I've got to introduce you to some of the realities of our world, to the disparities that exist still between groups in a variety of domains. And I might not be able to convince you in one or even two or three conversations, but my goal isn't to change your mind in that one conversation. My goal is to plant a seed or to water the ground that somebody else has planted that seed in, maybe prune some branches. And that over time, if I'm doing my part and you're doing your part, we're going to help to change people's minds collectively over time. And when we break it down like that, suddenly that backlash seems almost understandable, but also doesn't seem as daunting, right? I can work with that. Dr. Evelyn Carter is Managing Director of Paradigm, a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy firm. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. When we come back, how are these DEI conversations and actions playing out in major insurance, finance, and healthcare organizations here in Connecticut? This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. People of color are significantly underrepresented in executive and senior leadership roles. That's according to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The murder of George Floyd a year ago prompted many companies to issue statements of support. But what's the action that's being taken to change this? Earlier this month, I moderated a discussion on these issues hosted by the Metro Hartford Alliance. They are also an underwriter for Connecticut Public. In this excerpt from the discussion, you'll hear from Alexia Cruz, Senior Vice President and Claim General Counsel at Travelers. Greg Jones is Vice President of Community Health and Engagement for Hartford HealthCare. And Brandy Smith is Vice President, Workplace Diversity and Counsel at Lincoln Financial Group. Ask Alexia about a recent McKinsey report that finds that Black workers are underrepresented and undercompensated in the fastest growing and highest paying sectors. So how do companies cultivate a climate that is conducive to trust and success? You know, one thing I've really been thinking a lot about because we need to move the needle quicker um, because some of these programs that we have talked about in the past take a long time to implement and see um, diverse talent moving through the pipeline at the speed we'd like to see it. Uh, Allyship. One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about at Travelers in the last year or so is allyship. Um, We talk about group being an ally to a group. So if there's eight diversity networks at Travelers in the last year and a half, we've added the word 
and allies to all of them in the last year or so. And that means you can be a passive ally or an active ally. When you think about being an active ally, you wanna educate yourself as a leader. One group cannot do it alone. Uh, it'll take too long. We need allies around the companies to really get in there and see what they can do to learn about the special interests of the group, how they can help promote. And then I think about, that's great, you're an ally to a group, but what about being an ally as a senior leader to individuals? That's gonna take time. And you can be a passive ally or you can be an active proactive ally. And I think we're not gonna move the needle and get to know and build these relationships that are absolutely critical to advancing diverse talent unless we as leaders decide to engage. We need to get to know talent in our own worlds, outside, around our company, outside of our company, get to know people, learn about different cultures, learn about people that don't look like yourself or have the same background. When you do that, you will learn and understand that there's a lot of talent out there that you may not have realized. Um, it's maybe not directly obvious in front of you. Brandy, Alexia talked about the choices that leaders have and also the ability to adjust and adapt those choices as well. And one of the choices that we see in organizations is the choice about how we measure and determine effectiveness. So for some people, it's counting who's there or seeing who's there. For others, it's about outcomes. And I wondered if you could talk about what are the metrics, if we are really committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are the metrics that organizations and leaders should employ when they are thinking about success? You have to think about it from all perspectives, all metrics, um, all directions. While it's nice to have a large number, it's more important and it's just as important to retain. But it is also important that those people who are considering joining the company or already within the company, when someone walks up to them and asks them about your company, when someone walks up to me and asks me about Lincoln Financial Group, my response outweighs any metric, any statement, any you know outcome strategy that may be going on behind the scenes. And so what you really have to do is figure out how do you match that employee experience to whatever you have going on behind the scenes. Another big thing that can help with metrics and strategies and aspirations is formally tying. We have formally tied some of our diversity and inclusion objectives to compensation for our most senior leaders. Um, but that's not the start. We've had for years a foundation of um, leadership expectations where we measure people's performance from a diversity and inclusion perspective. What are those behaviors and actions you're doing to represent and to help build the core and cultural foundation for the company? So while numbers are great and it's nice to have a strategy and a plan, it really matters what your employees say, what they think about you. And when someone comes to knock at their door, if they would say, no, thanks, I'm, I'm good here. Um, and that's where you have to get that sweet So Greg, what would be an actionable strategy that you would say to organizational leaders who may not be comfortable in this space or aren't sure how to build those kinds of relationships and connections that you mentioned? What would you say to them is a way to do it? We need to recruit retain and develop talent. And if you put those three um, objectives in your initiative, then I think you can see how we can be even more productive, right? When you start to recruit people, 
then you start to develop people, then you start to retain people. You actually help the bottom line in more ways than one and just in your marketplace. You help reduce the HR costs, right? Because I'm not in HR, but I understand that HR in recruiting and developing people can be a very costly proposition. Just think if we were able to recruit, develop and retain and have a high retention rate of all of our employees, then our recruiting costs would go down, which further goes to the bottom line. I also would encourage folks to think about development pipelines. We need organizations to think about development pipelines. What is their succession planning? I'm gonna take a phrase from another foundation I'm involved with, talent is really universal. Opportunities are not. So what we've got to do is we've got to develop platforms for this talent to be exercised. And when you do those things, when you start to recognize, when you start to recruit, you start to develop, you start to understand that talent is universal, you will start to build a pipeline that gives opportunities for folks to make your company and your institution quite valuable. Brandy, I want to come back to you when we think about the relationships that need to be built. We think about the leadership traits. We think about the risk. We think about the commitments that need to happen. Often the work of building an inclusive organization feels like it falls on the shoulders of those who have been excluded to begin with. And I'm thinking here of a quote by Roz Brewer, who says, don't ask your folks to do things that you are not willing to do. When we think about this path of elevating diverse talent, of having the conversations, of setting the standards that we've heard from the panelists so far, how can leaders build those kinds of relationships that will spark the transformational change, whether it is the things that are sort of simple in the everyday to the more strategic transformative? Oh, I could talk about this for a week um, because I think relationships are, but I won't, but I think relationships are so important. They can make or break an experience from the first 30 seconds. The ability to have just an open conversation um, is something that I think we take for granted. And I think we take it for granted because there are some of us that show up every day who have on multiple cloaks of which one do I have to have on when I come into a certain room. And those things are heavy. And it's little things that leaders can do in building those relationships. I remember my very first day of, actually during the interview process and very early on, my boss's boss told me, never change who you are. And he meant that so sincerely because he liked the brandy that was showing up. And the brandy that was showing up was the brandy that said, I feel comfortable here. I feel like I belong. And I feel like my voice will always be heard. Um, he, he told me, Brandy, there will never be a moment where I throw you under the bus. He said, if you're not 100% certain about something, leave an opening for me to kind of come in and, and help, but I will always have your back. And those few words, those small conversations go so far when it comes to having a conversation with senior leaders and being confident about what you deliver because you got someone who has your back. So it's those little things in the relationships that you have with leaders who help build that trust, who help make it okay to have those crucial conversations so that after you have a death of a George Floyd or a, a Breonna Taylor, and you say, can I even say this name within my organization? 
you confidently say, yes, I can. And I'm going to, we're going to have conversations that may make it uncomfortable, but the only way to do that is to have that comfort and that trust to say, and I'm, and I'm okay to do this because I left my bags at the door or my cloaks at the door. Alexia there, I want to pull out of that point by Brandy there is data-driven, well-researched, well-studied uh, reports that show that having a more diverse pool of talent actually creates better outcomes. And all of the things that we traditionally think of as priorities for our organizations, we're able to reach better decisions and avoid some of the pitfalls that could become a PR nightmare for our organizations, but really also lose our competitive edge. Thinking about what Brandy just said about how critical it is to simply have a leader say, I see you as your full self and the benefit that you bring to our organization. How do we change the dynamic so that it's not just talent coming to senior leadership to say, you know, I want to have these new experiences or could we have a conversation, but to shift it so that it's senior leaders doing that kind of outreach that you mentioned at the start. When we accept at the highest level that diversity is a business imperative, and there's article after article saying the most successful teams have diversity, it is on you as a leader and your team to make sure and take ownership of having that the best team you can possibly have. And that means you have to challenge yourself to have diversity on your team. You, you can't sit back and wait for the talent to come to you. So that was one of the points I was trying to make before. If you're proactive and you think about the succession plan, if you look at your succession plan, no matter what level you're at, and there's no diversity on, in that succession plan, um, you have to challenge yourself to understand why and what you can do to get diversity in the pipeline. And how are you going to expedite that? Are you going to get to know talent across the organization? Are you going to allow them to shadow you, participate in um, really high level meetings and get them at the table, not just sitting in the back corner taking notes? How are you going to help them build those relationships that are critical to getting to the next level? So I really truly fundamentally believe if you're a leader, you have to take accountability for this. And it's for your own. Selfishly, you're going to get better results and your team's going to be higher performing. So I'm not sure why you wouldn't do this. Greg, let's talk about not the risk, but the investment. And one of the things that is always a question is what role should the business community play in addressing the challenges in the cities and the region and the area where they are based? You know, a lot of people say, well, we would love to have more diverse talent. We would love to promote people through our organization, but there's a pipeline problem that the candidates simply are not there. What role should these organizations play in creating those pipelines, either in partnership with local communities or an intentional commitment to, again, not just getting people in the door in an entry level, but also having people at every level being able to advance? Great. I think both of those strategies work. And how often have we heard we can't find them? Uh, we don't know where they are. Um, talk to me. I can, I can help you out. Uh, that's what some of our colleagues should be saying is that we need to use all of our personal networks to advocate for opportunities for individuals. And so since we are there, corporations and companies are there for a reason, we certainly need to connect with the people that are there as well. I think most often though, people think about this issue of 
talent and recruitment more transactional. It's really strategic. So if we can't find them today, okay, which I disagree with that statement because I do believe that they're there. Talent is universal, opportunities are not. But let's go with your thought process now that we can't find them or we need to develop uh, folks. Let's start the development process now so that in four or five years, you will have individuals that you can recruit. So the development process starts early. It starts as early as middle school. It starts as early as high school. Before you know it, five years out, these youngsters or young folks will be in college and graduating. So I think let's look at it strategically and transactionally, but I think strategically, you're going to get more bang for your buck. You're going to get a bigger return on your investment. It's going to require a little bit of time and interest. But if you start today on developing talent at the middle school and high school level, develop them so they have the foundation educationally so they can pursue multiple careers when they get to the point of pursuing things in college. That's how you develop the pipeline. So if we can't find them now, then what are we doing today so that we don't have that same argument in four or five years from now? So we have to be patient sometimes to develop the talent, plant the seed and let it grow. But I think there are folks there that can be aggressive in their personal outreach as well as starting strategically to develop talent today. I was part of a panel conversation I moderated for the Metro Hartford Alliance. Thanks to Greg Jones from Hartford Healthcare, Alexia Cruz from Travelers, and Brandy Smith from Lincoln Financial Group. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>